Welcome to Fashion Your Seatbelt, your first class seat to one-on-one conversations with the fashion industry's top voices. I'm Jessica Michaud, and I created this podcast to share the joy I have in getting to know all the amazing people who bring this creative, inventive, and extraordinary business to life. You'll get to hear the cadence of their voices, the sound of their laughter, and feel firsthand how passionate they are about what they do. Also, I just want to remind you to leave a review. Stars are really trending right now, and it helps other very stylish listeners like yourself find the show. Now buckle up, and let's get started. You get the sense when you speak with designer Joseph Altazara that he is that perfect combination of creativity and commerce. That, as a French-American, he has that innate sense of style coursing through his veins, while his American roots give him a savvy business sense and a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps attitude. From a young age, Joseph, who was raised by his French Basque father and his Chinese-American mother, has always believed in the transformative power of fashion. A self-taught designer who got a Bachelor of Arts degree in art and art history from Swarthmore College, his approach to the sartorial art form has always been focused on how the clothes someone chooses to wear tells a larger story. It can be the story of who that individual is, or it can be the one of the person that they hope to become. That clothing telegraphs a message to the world about how we see ourselves. As luck would have it, right out of school, Joseph landed an internship in the design studio of Marc Jacobs in 2004. And then he went on to work with Perenza Schuller before being tapped by Ricardo Tichy to join him in Paris and become the designer's first apprentice during his tenure at Givenchy. Then, in 2008, Joseph returned to New York to strike out on his own. And for the moment he launched his signature brand, his work stood out from the other fashion collections being shown at New York Fashion Week. His sexy, sensual aesthetic that wove together elements of his multicultural heritage into his designs did not fit into the American sportswear approach of many of his peers at the time. But standing out from the crowd served Joseph well. He was honored with the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund Award in 2011 and the CFDA Swarovski Award for Women's Wear Design in 2012. He then was named the winner of the U.S. Woolmark Prize in 2013 and in 2014 he nabbed the CFDA Women's Wear Designer of the Year Award. Suffice it to say, Joseph, with his accolades, his brand collaboration with Target, and his stint as a judge on the first season of the Amazon Prime television series Making the Cut, turned Altazara into a household name. And now, with his label well-established in the fashion industry, Joseph is thinking about where he wants to take things from here. In our conversation, we discussed what the future holds for this talented designer as he looks at his career from a post-pandemic perspective, a viewpoint that has been changed by the arrival of his daughter Emma and a desire to lead a balanced and intentional life but one that will always have fashion at its heart. Hey, Joseph, it's good to see you. Hi, nice to see you. Thanks so much for doing this. I know you're in the U.S. and I'm based here in Paris, but we're getting to each other via the famous... Beauty beauty of technology. Exactly, exactly. So for this Fashion Your Seatbelt podcast, as always, I'd like to go back to the beginning when we start these off. So tell me a little bit about the those first steps into fashion when did you discover it what excited you about fashion um what was that first inkling that this is a a field you wanted to get into you know it's kind of interesting because when i was when i was younger i I really i loved art i loved drawing i don't know that i had a particular love for fashion Mm -hmm. um my you know my kind of first introduction to fashion really outside of being French and you know fashion is like a national treasure in France Mm -hmm. um 
my first kind of introduction to fashion was really like uh, very personal because I was a super nerdy kid, like super geeky. And I what didn't have a lot of friends, wasn't super popular. And I, you know, I grew up in the area era of like, you know, those teenage teeny bop movies, like 10 things I hate about you. And she's all that. And, you know, I really believed that if I could like make myself over and find the right, you know, pieces of clothing and I wore the right jeans and the right jacket that I would be like popular. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think, you know, in a weird way, I had this like fascination with fashion as kind of a transformative tool. And that was really kind of how I got interested in it. As I kind of grew older, I was a teenager during the era of like Tom Ford sex sells and obviously was in love with Tom Ford. Me too. Uh, I was so disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it was like, I was also really attracted to this world that felt really um, glamorous and free and sexually kind of liberated. And that was something that was super attractive to me too. But it wasn't really until like later in my kind of late teens that I really started becoming interested in fashion as like a as a profession, as a serious kind of, as like a job, I guess. Yeah. But then, so then explain to me a Swarthmore college and studying art history. I mean, it's the classic, yeah, my, my, my child studying art history is like, what are you going to do with that? So a hundred percent. Yeah. Tell me how that pivoted. Cause that's like, the although my parents were, were also like, I mean, you're going to study fashion. Like, what are you going to do with that? Um, you know, I, basically was really into, I was into a lot of things when I was, when I was 18 and going to college. And I felt like I knew, I didn't know anyone in fashion. I didn't know anything about fashion. And I didn't know if I wanted to be a fashion designer or if I wanted to be a curator or if I wanted to be like a researcher. I was always very into academics, really into reading. And so I, decided to go to a liberal arts school, which I think when I first, you know, when I first started working in fashion, and I know we'll talk a little bit about that later, I had, you know, I felt like that was a great handicap, the fact that I hadn't gone to fashion school. Like, I felt like, uh, you know, I don't know how to sew as well. And I, you know, a lot of like, my kind of technical proficiency was self-taught. But I think in retrospect, it was a really great, it was a great experience. You know, I took econ classes, which I still, you know, use as a business owner. I took like statistics classes. I took um, art history classes, which were, you know, really um, helpful to me still today. I took literature classes, sociology classes, psychology, psychology classes. So it was, it was a, it was a very broad curriculum. And that was, I think, really, I I think that that ended up giving me like a fuller, kind of a fuller understanding of culture and of what my job is as a designer beyond sort of the technical aspects of it. Well, I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I, I studied at a liberal, I have a bachelor of arts degree as well. And then yeah. you know, my, my master's was 16 years with Susie Menkes, which I mean, yeah. is, you know, it's that 
you know, in the, in the trenches kind of training, which it sounds like ended up happening for you as well. Once you, you got your degree, I know you, you worked at Mark Jacobs and Prenza Schuler. And I know, I think that's where we sat next to each other at that show. When I first discovered you were French and we started chatting away in French. Yeah. And then also I think um, Ricardo Tichy when he was at Givenchy. So it sounds like you're of the mind of like, you know, get into the trenches, you know, learn as you uh, make those mistakes and learn as you go. I mean, do you- Totally. And and I do think that that is kind of the best school because a lot of what you learn in fashion school, albeit I think being very important, I think that working in the industry is very different. And and I love, you know, I loved every minute of it. I mean, it was like, it was the trenches. It was like starting from the bottom. It was like getting coffee and doing photocopies and getting yelled at and not always super fun. Yeah. But um, but I also, I learned so much from, you know, each experience. And I remember, I remember how those experiences shaped me. And I can really see in retrospect sort of the journey that I went on and how I got to where I am now through those experiences. Um, and I feel really lucky um, that, that I was able to do things, that. What were some of those kind of key things that you pulled from each of those experiences? Like this, I'm not going to yell up these kind of little interns or whatever it might be. And these are the things that I'm going to take with me when I launched yeah. my What were the things that you like, I got to make sure. Um, well, I mean, the big things, I remember really distinctly, you know, Ricardo was an amazing mentor in a lot of ways and really was ahead of his time on a lot of, you know, on a lot of um, fronts. Mm-hmm. And But I remember the thing that I'll take away from my experience at Givenchy is really with Ricardo is his kind of undying belief in his vision. Mm-hmm. Like there is something so uncompromising about what he believes in, even if people don't like it, even if people tell him that he should change, even if things, you know, don't sell or like he believes in his vision and he will do what he wants to do, which I think really paid off in a lot of ways. So that's what I would take away from Givenchy. I think from Proenza, I mean, I really just take away, I took everything at Proenza was wonderful. You know, it was like, it was such a small company when I was there. It was very family kind of, it was a very family environment, familial environment. And I think everything about that experience made me realize I wanted to start a company and that I wanted in a lot of ways that kind of, to create an environment that people kind of thrived in um, and where people felt invested. And I, I think that, to me, that was a really beautiful experience. I was very young, but I, you know, it was like Jack and Lazaro would like, you know, we came in on the weekend or whatever, like they'd sit down with everyone and like everyone would have lunch. And it was like a very like familial, really nice kind of um, feeling. Um, And then Mark Jacobs, which was the first. Yeah. I just remember being obviously at this point, I knew nothing about fashion, um, but I remember just feeling so awed by like Mark's talent. Like he was, he is so talented. Um, And I think that he, you know, what I, what I really took away from, from that experience is how he was able to kind of 
create kind of a vision for each season and really like that vision would permeate every single aspect of the company. You know, it'd be like sales and marketing and design and the atelier and like it would sort of tentacle out. And I think that that's something that can be very hard to do. You have to be good at communicating. You have to be you have to be very kind of open about your process and um and that's something that I still do today or try to do today. Well, then let's let's talk about, you know, the famous 2008, probably the worst time ever to launch any kind of company. Yeah, probably. I mean, <laughs> this year is also this not so great. This year kind of comes up there. I got to say, <laughs> yeah. maybe 2020 wins it by a nose at the worst year ever to launch anything. But so, if, you know, to remind those who are listening, 2008, of course, was the, you know, the the second Great Depression or, you know, the giant recession. Yeah. What made you decide 2008? What was that kind of declic in your head where you said, let's, let's go now. I need to, you know, spread my wings. Well, you know, unfortunately I started, I, I decided to start the company in 2007, mm-hmm. um, which was, and, you know, did not have the foresight to see the recession, you know, the bursting of the, of the bubble. But I, you know, I remember, I distinctly remember the day it happened because the day the market crashed because it was the day that we opened our showroom. Um, And I remember feeling incredibly demoralized, but also realizing in that moment that really there was nowhere else for me to go but up. Like I was already at zero sales. So it was more for me, it was it was more about like, well, unfortunately, like I'm I'm not going to get picked up by like 20 accounts, like maybe I'll get picked up by like five accounts. We ended up getting picked up by three um, the first season, um, Barney's, Ikram, and Dover Street Market. Um, And we had to fight for all those accounts. But in a weird way, I think it kind of like instilled a sense of frugality in our process. Like the year, you know, 2008 was hard, but 2009 and 2010 weren't like so great either. Um, You know, they were, retail was really struggling, um, luxury was struggling. And I think we, you know, I mean, my my office was in my living room for like three to four years. um, And I had like one employee and made a FedEx run every day and, you know, was doing everything by myself, my mom would fly in from Paris and like help me dress the models when we had showroom. And wait, wait, wait. I gotta say, I'm in love with your mom. She is the best advertisement for you. And I see all of her, you know, wearing your outfits, the different looks of the season. She really is. She oh really is. God. She wears it very well. Very well. Um, very and there's so many, you know, in the and and when we talk about, I was telling my husband actually a story that I hadn't told him before, but. Um, about our first ever show. So our first season was a lookbook. Our first ever show was spring, summer, 2000, or fall, winter, um, 2009. And um, it was in this small gallery. And I remember like, you know, basically get striking a deal with this gallery owner. The gallery was closed on Saturday and he was going to give me the space and I would give his assistant like an outfit. And... Um, I had a boom box. Um, there was no seating. Um, we had like 15 models with like, and, but eight pairs of shoes and the backstage was like minuscule. My mom baked cookies for the models backstage. Like I paid 
you know, Tom Fisher's assistant in cash. Like it was like a whole, it was like, but those you know, first show. And, yeah. um, but, I, and I remember walking out, I had three, you know, shows in a row and people could just kind of come and see whatever show they wanted. And um, I remember coming out and like CNN was there and Kathy Horn was there and, you know, American Vogue. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, this is like crazy. Like it's happening. This is crazy. And, in a, you know, it's so, when I think back on those times, it's so unbelievable, you know, what happened to, to me and to the brand. I'm, I feel so lucky. Um, and it's also like in the moment when you're like on the floor and you're like duct taping a girl's foot to like a shoe, it feels like the worst place to be. Um, but when I think back on it, I'm like, wow, that was, those were amazing times. Like yeah. those were the, the energy was so amazing, like the the kind of like stapling it together and hoping it's going to like work kind of mentality is something that I, I really, you know, I really loved. Well, talk to me a little bit about the longevity of the brand, because it's been 13 years and I, I, I have spoken like Dries van Noten always said to me, it's, you know, it's everything after that third collection, because, you know, you can pull in favors and you have your mom bringing cookies and all of that for your first and your second, and your third show. But when you start getting past that, things get a little bit more serious and you have to have like more ideas. And, and so I'm wondering about strategically the longevity of the company. And I know that you're now showing in Paris as opposed to New York and I'm yeah. the process behind, you know, what are those? It's a really things? good, I mean, that is such a good question. And I've actually spoken to Dries also about it um, because it's true. You have this, companies go through a life cycle. You know, you have your kind of childhood years and it's it's actually easy during that time because everyone wants to write about you. Yep. Everyone wants to shoot you. Every celebrity wants to wear you because you're new and you're shiny and you're like interesting. And then you go through this like kind of, these awkward years, kind of te your awkward teenage years where you don't really have the money to pay for advertising anymore. You're not like the shiny new toy anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and you're sort of having to try to figure out like, how do you get to like adulthood? And those years can be really hard. And in the beginning, it's like stores don't care about your sell through. Um, they just wanna pick you up because like, they wanna be able to say that they carry you. But you get, once you get to a certain point, they're like, okay, you need to like start selling and your sell through needs to be like this percentage and, or else we're not going to be able to continue. And, this and is so where the Tishi comes into play where you got to stick to your guns and be you, right? <laughs> exactly. And the, I mean, the amount of times people like retailers came to me during the Phoebe Philo era and were like, everything should be minimal and like you should really do things that are like really clean and like you just have to like believe try to believe in yourself and believe in what you're doing and I think you know the there is part of like that longevity in this business is just like pure grit mm -hmm. like how much are you gonna just be able to hang on and like make it work mm -hmm. and you know what's What's interesting too, I'm sure, and I'm sure you've witnessed this in this industry, and I think the pandemic has really laid laid it bare, is that there's also such a disparity between like the facade of fashion and like what a company will kind of 
display versus like the reality of like the back office and what is like going on. And I think that, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the silver lining about the, the period that we've, we're going through is that I think that there is this kind of, there has been a period of adjustment where I think companies have been like, we really can't afford to like have a million dollar show every, you know, couple years, like, and doing a video or doing a, you know, presentation or doing a lookbook can be just as rewarding. Yeah, um, and yeah. there was a time when if you didn't do a show, you weren't taken seriously. Um, and I think that that has changed a lot. So I think that the, the, you know, there was a, to go back to your question, I think that there was a path to adulthood, which was very prescribed for a really long time. It was like, you get to this point, then you start advertising in magazines, then you, and you sort of build on that and you build your ready, your, your accessories business and you build your fragrance business and that supports your ready to wear business. And it's all, it's all like, I think that the way that you reach adulthood now has kind of you can reach it in a lot of different ways, you know, and, and Dries is an interesting example of that because he always did his own doesn't thing. have a, a re, uh, accessories business. You know, his business is ready to wear, which is super rare. And, and biannual, like there's no pre And biannual, you know, exactly. And then, you know, biannual, you go to bed, you go to Antwerp, you buy the collection. You, Paris, you have the one store. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, you have the one store, no e-com. Like it's a really, and it's a very, it's a model that is, actually quite a frugal model, but that is super long lasting. But it works for him because that's one of the things that I'm, well, there are a couple of things that I'm hearing from young designers, especially out of London, you know, many of them that are coming from like the sustainability space where they're like, I don't need to be, you know, have a sales point in every corner of the world at every shop and have a, you know, yeah. I, you know, I want to make enough that I can pay, you know, my staff well, and that I can have a nice life or whatever, but I don't need to be, you know, a household. Yeah. Like, it's a different. And, and I think that that I haven't heard before. Such a good, such, I think that that is such a good point because I think at the, really at the crux of all of this is like how we have, how the definition of success has changed. Yeah. You know, I think that there was this sense, at least my generation, when, when we were starting companies, like the goal was to be like McQueen. The yeah. goal was to be, you know, was to be big, was yeah. to be Prada. I think that that, and I'm not, you know, the goal has changed a lot for me. Like, I, I think when I started the company, that was the goal. Yeah. Um, but I think that the definition of what success is um, and happiness has really changed. I mean, has that, I, I'm going to take a hard right and say, has that been a direct reflection to you becoming a dad of Emma? Has that been a big, big It, it has, life? yeah. I think that that, it's put a, I mean, it's so trite to say that it's put things in perspective, but I think that, you know, becoming a dad and also going through a, a totally unprecedented time in our lives um, where, and the realization that my, you know, how, you know, how intrinsically linked my identity was to my job yep. um, was really uh, eye-opening. Like, you know, realizing that like, wow, I really define myself as the creative director of Altuzara mm -hmm. before anything else. And if that goes away, 
then like, who am I? Like, mm-hmm. what, what is my role? What is my purpose in life? Like, what makes me happy? Yeah, and I think you are not alone in having that experience of like those, those deep questions, fundamental questions about who am I, for sure. This last year has been that for a lot of people, for sure. Totally. And I think it's, it's really healthy to go through that, you know, to go through that questioning, because it, it does put things into perspective. For me, the major shifts in this last year have been a push towards sustainability, buying less, buying better, again, the digital, and then, you know, transparency. And I see how you and your brand are doing that in relationship to it. You're doing the recrafting, so taking yeah. pieces and redoing it. I saw that on YouTube, you're doing a lot of behind the scenes for your spring, summer, really letting people into the atelier and seeing your process, which I think is so intelligent. And I think also the idea of when we're talking about how different paths to success, the whole kind of direct to consumer aspect that's coming into play. But I wanted you to talk to me about your thought process for, you know, the recrafting collection, why you decided to do YouTube videos, this behind the scenes stuff, because this is all kind of new for you. Totally. Well, it came from a couple different places. I think one of the biggest I think one of the biggest shifts that happened for me during the pandemic, and I know this has happened for other designers, especially independent designers, was that really my, this entire project, like the entire Altuzara brand is extremely personal to me. Mm -hmm. Like it is a very, it's it's very linked to my identity and to how I think about my life and um, what's going on in my life and that, it will kind of change and shift depending on how I, you know, what I'm doing and how I feel. And, and that that is actually the unique differentiator of my brand. Like I think for a very long time, I wanted, I tried to be Gucci, mm-hmm. you know, or I tried to be um, Prada where you are actually kind of, and, and I made a conscious decision to remove my personal, any kind of personal relationship to the brand and make it like a brand capital B, like to make it about like brand storytelling and to make it about like, you know, nothing, like I didn't want it to be related to me personally. I wanted, I wanted it to be seen as like this kind of monolithic brand. And I think I realized that actually that's a mistake and that the, the thing that makes Altuzar unique is the fact that it's so personal and Mm -hmm. is the fact that it's just me and you know that we're a small independent brand and and I I think when I realized that it totally shifted my perspective on how we communicate with our community and how we communicate about what we do and a lot of things that had become really that have were very personal to me and personal beliefs about like sustainability or transparency or process all of a sudden kind of began to infiltrate the brand and infiltrate our process and i saw that a little bit it was really interesting and, and i know we might talk about this later but i did a tv show called making the cut yeah and um we can talk about that now, Making the Cut. <laughs> I did this TV show called Making the Cut on, on Amazon, which was never something I would have ever thought I would do. And I loved it. 
I thought it was like so fun. It was really dynamic. It was super interesting to not do something in fashion and to do not do something necessarily that was related to the brand. But what I really, what I thought was so interesting was how late to the game fashion was in kind of connecting kind of the making of a piece and the the creation, the process of creation with commerce. Like there was this kind of like, there would be these very editorialized videos. I mean, that's existed for a long time. Like, how do you make this jacket? How do you make this bag? And it's like very like music video-y and very like slow motion. But what was so interesting about making the cut was that what I realized was people really want to see like the challenges. They want to see the like nitty gritty. They want to see like what didn't work and they want to, they want to get, you know, absorbed into the process and feel like they're understanding like the challenges that you went through. And, and so when I, I think when I realized that, and, and part of how I realized that was that, you know, the winning look, audience would follow these um, designers making their pieces and the winning look would then was offered on e-com. And I don't think, you know, I don't think that, I think it was a way for Amazon to like connect with the viewer in a different way, but I don't think they ever really thought that it was going to be like a a gangbuster sale and it would sell out. Like they would buy big quantities and it would sell out every every week. And it's because people, and these are super conceptual things, you know, and I think it's because people really loved being part of the process and wanted to kind of like support their, you know, champion and yeah. support the designer that won. And yeah. yeah, they were invested. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and so when that happened, you know, when I realized this, I found a camera, like a, a filmmaker and I basically was like can you just follow me mm-hmm. as I'm like creating the collection and obviously the timing was super weird because it was during the pandemic and I was on video chat with my team and you know we were doing fittings over zoom with Italy and whatever but I was like you know this is like really how this is like getting done and, and I, um, I love you saying look this is your dress and you have this beautiful white handkerchief hem pleated dress come out and and you're like giving praise to your team. And so it's so great to see, you know, and how yeah. come together in that creative process. I've got to say, it's really, it, it's it's really great. And I I really appreciated seeing it and, and getting that behind. Thank the you. Because as much as I'm sitting in the front row, looking at the final product and judging it within the space and how you're presenting it, it's so great to see the nitty gritty, even for someone like me who knows, but you know, doesn't Yeah, matter. totally. All right, yeah. I, have, I have to ask Kamala Harris, what was it like seeing her in your clothes? I mean, I've been, I, I love her so much. And <laughs> who doesn't? Uh, <laughs> we've been, we've been working with her team. You know, I think that she had been a, an ultra fan prior to running for office. And so, you know, she kind of knew what she liked. Um, she had like this, cu- these couple of cuts that we do of tailoring that she really liked. And um, it's been like, honestly, like a dream come true. I mean, I've never been so proud to dress someone. I just think she embodies so many of the values that I believe in. And and she's such an, you know, especially having a daughter, you know, it's so 
it's like this full circle moment too, where I just feel so, I feel proud to be part of this story and even this tiny way. And especially because she's such an incredible role model for, for girls and women everywhere. I just think it's so, so wonderful. Well, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. It's, and it's, and I, you know, you are, you can't do a, one of your shows without some great tailored pieces for sure. Cause that is like a signature thing. <laughs> I also have to give you praises for, because it was so great to discover on uh, 11 Honoré that, you know, there's some plus size pieces. And then I yes. saw you know, the upcycling recrafting pieces that you're using, you know, taking older pieces, yeah. and building them. What is, I mean, it, it sounds like you were talking earlier about this idea of your company being, you know, more about you. Are these all signals to that idea of not trying to yeah. be brand with the big B, but more back to who you are? Yeah, d- definitely. I mean, I think that there were a lot, there were a lot of things that I just had, had believed, really believed in over time that we just never did. And it didn't make sense for, didn't make sense for the story or it didn't make sense for that time. And at a certain point I was just like, you know what? Like, I just really want to, like, I want to do this. I want to try it. I really believe in it. I'm passionate about it. Let's just do it. And like, you know, there are things, sometimes things don't work and sometimes they do. And sometimes they don't work and you still want to continue doing it, you know? And when I started the brand, I really kind of believed in this idea of, you know, body positivity and that Ultrasar was really for everyone. And we really cut, when we're in fittings and when we're thinking about clothes, we really think about like, how are women going to wear this? You know, is your bra going to be showing? Like, if you don't like your thigh, like, how do you, how, or if you don't like your hips, like, what silhouette would you want to wear? And, um, you know, how do you make a woman feel like she, you know, is being held in in certain places, but also not like, you know, we really, and I work with a team that's basically exclusively women. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to translate that thoughtfulness into like clothing that was for everyone in every size. And, um, and it's actually done incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen, interestingly, especially in the tailoring, you know, we, we really um, kind of broaden the size range and that we've seen just such an incredible response to that and I just think it's just something that I really believe in and that I just feel we should have been doing we I mean we touched about this a little on this a little bit earlier about kind of what this last year has been like how people have changed because of the pandemic how you personally have changed in this last year but can you talk to me before I get into my five generic fashion questions to wrap this up but just a, a thought to looking towards the future now, um, as we're clearly, at least in the U.S., you know, coming out of the yeah. pandemic, you know, masks are starting to come off outside, you know, with other people who have had their shots. Where are you looking at this point? What's exciting you? What What are you looking forward to creatively, personally? You know, I I have not been this excited about my job or about Altuzara in a really long time. Um, which is really odd. Um, but I think, you know, I, first of all, I think we have a lot of things coming that I'm super excited about. Um, and I think that this sense that suddenly like there's not a right way to do things anymore. And there's not like, there's not so much this idea of gatekeepers and this idea that you have to kind of prescribe to a certain model has been really freeing for me. And, there are a lot of 
over the years, there were a lot of projects that I wanted to do, or there were a lot of ideas that I had about, you know, maybe other brands or other, you know, capsules or other that just like didn't fit within the norm of luxury fashion. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has been the most, I think that that's been kind of the most productive part of the last year has been that realization and putting and, and kind of just going for it and kind of following my gut again. That's been really exciting. Well, I, I hope you continue to show in Paris because I do love having Althazar. <laughs> I, I got to say that's, that's kind of my, I look forward to it. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. Okay, let me, let me ask you my um, five generic fashion questions. So the, the first one is, what is your favorite piece of clothing that you own personally that you cherish? I own a pair of leather pants that I had made maybe like 10, year, or 10 years ago. Yeah, um, that I still wear almost every day. Well, bravo for having a pair of pants you can still wear 10 years later. <laughs> what is what is it about it that you love so much? Is it just, you know, leather pants are great? It's really, well, okay. When I first got them, they were in this very stiff leather. I took a, I took a, I read online that if you took like a bath or a shower in the pants and you let them dry Wait, on did you. Did you like a Ross Geller thing? No. <laughs> yeah. They would like mold to your body and they really have. And wow. they didn't move, like they haven't changed. I guess I haven't changed that much either. And um, and I just like love them so much. It's like a comfort piece of clothing for me. Uh, okay, so your leather pants are kind of your go-to sweatpants. I got it, okay. What, um, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, buying less, but buying better. People, a lot of people out there in the world don't have um, a ton of money to spend. If they were to save their pennies to invest in one piece, you know, designer piece or, or a larger ticket item, what kind of, what piece do you think that should be for them? I think everyone should have like a really great black blazer. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's, you know, even though I know that tailoring is not necessarily like trending up right now, but I, I think that, I think it's, it's timeless. I think, you know, everyone, every trunk show that I've done um, where like a client tries on a blazer and it fits beautifully, um, you get the same reaction, this like feeling of like, oh my God, like I feel so polished and put together and you can wear it with jeans and you can wear it with, uh, as a suit, you can wear it with the skirt. Like it, it's so versatile and it make, and I, it's one of those items of clothing going back full circle to that idea of like clothing as like a transformative object, like a transformative piece. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, it's one of those pieces that actually like makes you stand up a little straighter, makes yourself, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror and you feel a little differently. And I also think that it's one of those pieces, um, the difference between like a really cheap blazer and an expensive blazer is really, there's like a wide divide, you mm -hmm. know, like, I would never say like, oh, a, a black cashmere sweater or something, because I think you can get like a really good cashmere sweater at Uniqlo. Yeah, yeah you're not the first person to tell me that on this, on this podcast. So <laughs> I'm going to have to go to Uniqlo because I'm like all about the cashmere. Um, okay. Who is your favorite designer, living or dead? Um, Azadine Elia. Yeah. That man. That man. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's for for so many reasons, you know, it's like, for the for the obviously for how incredible the pieces are 
for his kind of uncompromising vision, both aesthetically and practically. I just think he, it is one of my like greatest kind of regrets in life that I never got to meet him. Oh, yeah. There's nothing like sitting at his kitchen table, having a meal. I bet. It's a thing. Okay. What trend will you never follow? What trend? I don't think I have a trend I would never follow. Okay. Never say never, huh? Never say never. Okay. And then my last question is, what do you love most about fashion? I love the people. Hmm. I think, um, you know, we're overlooked as, <laughs> as a people. We're, we're, given, we're given a bad rap. I, I think actually like that's what I'm, and, and, and that's what I miss the most, honestly, like is the people um, throughout this year is like, I just have made like the most incredible friends. I think fashion people are, you know, so smart, um, so, you know, so connected to culture, um, you know, witty, interesting. I just love fashion people. Me too. Me too. You are preaching to the choir. Joseph, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sorry it took what, like a decade for us to do this, but finally. No, but I'm so glad. I always love talking to you and it's been, it was really fun to to chat with you today. And hopefully we'll be seeing each other in person again soon. I know. I really hope so. Okay. Listen, big kiss from Paris. Big kiss. Bye. Bye. Don't want to miss an episode of Fashion Your Seatbelt? No problem. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and click on the subscribe button. Then every new episode will drop into your feed automatically. No fuss, no muss. Believe me, I know. I'm Jessica Michaud.